I, I wonder this morning whether you fit into the category of being a little bit more on the pessimist side, or would you consider yourself more of an optimist? I like this description I came across. The pessimist sees the dark tunnel. The optimist sees the light at the end of the tunnel. The realist sees the train in the tunnel. And the engineer sees three not very bright people standing on the tracks. I I like the, the guy who said, I have enough money to last me the rest of my life unless I buy something. Several years ago, uh, Woody Allen, uh, you know, the the comedian and humorist and director, began a college commencement with this following observation. He said, more than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. Let us pray that we have the wisdom to choose correctly. Uh, I'm not so sure that uh, Woody Allen was an optimist, and though he said it with his kind of characteristic wit and and humor, I I think his observation kind of taps into the feelings of some people in our day. I would say we do not live right now in in, in 2018 in the age of optimism. You know, I, whether it's through, through personal tragedies that people have experienced or through things like, like global warming or refugee crisis that is beyond anything the world's ever seen before, some people fear that the end must be surely just around the corner, that the future ain't so bright. And when you dig down just a little bit into that feeling and that sentiment, uh, I, I think what probably accentuates it is this feeling of powerlessness that we have around it. Like, what can you do? I mean, some of you have, have faced those kind of situations in your own life where you feel just kind of helpless and lost, and, and, and then you look at the problems in the, in the world, and they seem so big. As, as the children's book once said, the world is so big and I'm so small. Well, we're in this series, and in this wonderful book uh, in the Old Testament called Daniel, called Thriving in Babylon, and as we're considering our apparent powerlessness, I I would say today that Daniel is a good place to turn, and especially the second chapter. Uh, Daniel chapter two is all about power. It's all about the power of individuals, uh, the power of nations, and, and the power of God. So if you have a Bible, we're gonna, we're gonna read a portion uh, of Daniel chapter two today, and uh, we've got ushers ready to hand you Bibles. It's not gonna be on the screen this week. I wanna train you to bring a Bible or to have an app or to borrow a Bible when you come in. But uh, you can also just listen, and I'll read the scripture to you. Daniel chapter two, gonna read uh, parts of it, and uh, we'll begin at verse one. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king said to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Nice king. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor, so tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once again they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. 
Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whom we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? He urged them to to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God, forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden secrets. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what he asked of you. And you have made known to us the dreams of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. And just going to pause here for a moment. The the next part of the chapter has Daniel going to the king, approaching him, telling him not only what the dream was, but telling him what the interpretation of the dream was, this vision of this statue, this large statue that was made up of these different metals, gold and silver and bronze and and iron and clay. And and then Daniel basically says, this is what the future holds, not only for Babylon, but for the entire world. And he sums it up, this image, because there's this image of the mountain, this big rock that crashes into this statue, crumbling it, image of another kingdom. And it says then in verse 44, And following, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. 
Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. May God bless the reading of his word. We start with Nebuchadnezzar. He's quite the guy, isn't he? Nebuchadnezzar, as we kind of implied already, was a powerful king, the king of Babylon. Think empire, think nations invaded, think ruler. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's at the center of this this dominant world power, the Babylonian empire. And as we read in verse 1, he had dreams in the night that troubled him and kept him from sleeping. I think there's nothing worse maybe than a sleepless king. Being the king, um, he had resources. He had people around who could help. And so in verse 2, he summons his entourage, the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers. Basically, you remember the wise men, the magi? It was like these guys. He's he's inviting those guys into his council, and and, uh, he's asking them what his dream was about, which would have been a fairly normal request for a king to to ask of his wise men. and, And they're like, Tell us, O king, what the dream was, and we will interpret it for you. And this is where the king, he goes off script a little bit. (laughs) This wasn't quite normal. He says, no, I don't want you to just interpret it. I want you to tell me the dream. And if he throws this in, if you don't tell me this, off with your heads, right? I mean, the description is actually pretty PG there, uh, cut up into pieces and sent out to the empire. And it was no idle threat, really, when you think about it. This was a powerful king. I, I, I'd love to think that, that, you know, that was long, long ago, way back there, and, and we can explain it away as something that happened in ancient kingdoms, but there are far too many examples in our day of people who be- behave, who get into a position of power and behave just like Nebuchadnezzar. Now, why was Nebuchadnezzar being so obstinate about this dream? I mean, why was he so stubborn that they actually tell him the meaning? Uh, I think when it comes down to it, and you know this, there are dreams, and then there are dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar senses that this is not because of the buttered chicken, you know, that he ate last night before bed. <laughs> there's, something, there's something significant about this. In fact, we find out later that, indeed, God had given him this dream, and And God does this. God has done this. I wonder what dreams he's given to rulers in our day that we've never heard about. You know, the Abraham Lincolns and the Trudeaus. What dreams have God given them that never got documented? Because we know this, God did this throughout history. In the first time God spoke to pagan dreams, he gave a warning to Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. The story of Joseph in Genesis, pivots on a dream that God gave Pharaoh, and Joseph interpreted that dream, and very much like a parallel story to what we see in this passage in Daniel 2. Perhaps you've had a dream like that where God spoke to you because God does, God, God does that. Scripture tells us that God can speak to us in dreams. Now, Nebuchadnezzar may have demanded that the dream be told to him because of simply the fact that he forgot what the dream was. Uh, in fact, the King James Version in, in verse 5 has Nebuchadnezzar saying, this thing is gone from me. <laughs> it's like uh, Gandalf in the Mines of Moria where he says, I have no memory of this place. 
I just want to bring in Lord of the Rings quotes wherever I can, just so you know. Have you ever had a uh, disturbing dream like that, where you wake up stressed and anxious, and for the life of you, you can't remember what the dream was? Yeah? I'm sure most of us have. I think the most likely answer is, as some scholars suggest, and I think the passage backs it up, it, it was a question of trust. I, I've always um, had a picture when I've imagined kings of old, I, I've thought of them as, as being old men, old kind of white guys, maybe, for the most part, as Nebuchadnezzar. But, but here, he would have actually been fairly young. He would have been a relatively young man. He'd been very successful in his military conquests. He'd been the successor to his father, and likely, most of these Wise men and, and magicians and so forth were his father's counselors. So did he trust them? Maybe he questioned whether they were loyal or, or whether they would be honest to him. You see that with celebrities when you reach the top. I mean, who are your true friends, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar wants proof of their interpretation. He doesn't want their, their superstitious nonsense. He wants the truth. Well, the magicians in verse 7 say, O king, I don't think you quite understand. Tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. And that makes Nebuchadnezzar mad. And, and the, the, the magicians kind of sense this. They understand this, but they feel helpless. They know it's not just an impossible, an unreasonable quest. It's an, an impossible request. And so they say in verse 10, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. And the king is just enraged by this, and so he orders that his soldiers gather up the wise men and have them executed, and they're sent out to gather them all in. And then the story kind of shifts, and we, we find Daniel in the story. And Daniel, compared to Nebuchadnezzar, is simply not powerful at all. Uh, Daniel and his three friends, as we looked at last week, are living far from home in captivity in, in Babylon, a, uh, a pagan place, a pl- place that would be quite foreign to their, their ways and their values, even hostile to it. And in this story, Daniel hasn't heard what's going on in the court. He's been on the fringe, so to speak, and he only finds out when the soldiers arrive to, to take them away to be killed. Now, Daniel's quite quick on his feet here, and I'd suggest for good reason. I mean, he's going to be executed. But he gets permission to approach the king, which is not a small thing. And he asks for time with which to, to interpret the dream. In other words, he does what someone, no one else has been able to do. It, it's been deemed not possible, at least to this point. And not only humanly impossible, but according to the astrologers and the enchanters and, and the wise men, the gods of Babylon, they're not available either. They don't live among human beings. Now, remember Daniel, we talked about this last week, how he's just a really smart guy. He's, he's really bright. He's, he's just been through the best education available anywhere in the world in his day. And he graduated top of his class. But I think he knows that, that it doesn't matter. In, in this moment, all his smarts, all his education, all his wisdom, all his, his resources, it can't help. And so he's, when he's presented with this this challenge of of trying to interpret the king's dream or die. He knows that on his own he's powerless. His degrees on the wall mean nothing in this moment. And 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 it made me 
think about powerlessness this morning, I wonder this morning, when is the last time you felt powerless? Can you think about that? I think of a mom I know who's struggling with postpartum depression. I think of someone struggling with an opioid, opioid addiction. And, and their description is, it's such a hard taskmaster. Or someone whose loved one has a cancer diagnosis and the future just seems really, really unsure. Maybe the powerless comes, powerlessness or that sense comes when, when you fail again at a habit, a bad habit that you know is kind of stealing your life and joy away again and again and again. Maybe you're in a financial corner, a financial fix, and uh, it seems like there's just no way out. We can feel that way. We can feel powerless in any area of our lives. We can feel it relationally. In our marriages, in our, in our relationships with our family members, we can get to those places where we feel powerless. We can feel that way vocationally. We can feel it in our work, in our jobs. And uh, we can feel it even spiritually. And it's not fun at all. But here's the thing again, as bad as it can be, as humbling as it can be, powerlessness is not always a bad thing. Uh, Bill Wilson, um, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, he famously became convinced that for an alcoholic to, to, to get free, they often had to hit rock bottom before they could break out of that. And here's the thing, there can be great spiritual opportunity in either hitting the bottom or actually coming face-to-face with our limits, face-to-face with our, our limitations and, and even our brokenness, even the, the flaws and the baggage that we carry. It, it can be a real release to, to come, come to face those things. Jack Miller, uh, he was an influential minister in the, in, a, in the Presbyterian church in the 20th century, and he once wrote this honest phrase, this honest prayer request to his good friend. He said, please pray for my habitual tendency to trust in myself and what I do. To trust in myself and what I can do. And I I think his, his request reveals the constant struggle we have to kind of include God in our lives. And I, I think we live in a world where we get the message where we can just kind of make it. We can gut it out. We can we can get through just about anything through, through the use of our education, our powers, our, 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 our friends. It'll see us through. And then along, along the way comes something that just exposes our limitations and our powerlessness, and suddenly our need for God becomes sharply real. And most of us, I, I, I don't think, will face an a interpret the dream or die scenario, gratefully, But there are times on our own where we will feel utterly powerless and we'll need to see God, have God to see us through it. It's interesting, I want to tell you a story from Rwanda this morning. This was before I heard about Asumpta's family today, but a pastor I know told the true story uh, told to him by a missionary in Africa. It was a story of of a woman named Deborah, again from Rwanda. She was a, a Hutu. And one day a couple of Tutsi soldiers were riding uh, along in a boat and one decided he wanted some target practice. And see, so he opened fire and shot Deborah's young son dead right on the spot. And obviously Deborah was, was 
entirely devastated over the loss of her son, but she decided to, to pray for the soldier who had killed her son. And, and she prayed for some 40 days. You get the sense that she fasted and prayed the whole time. And, and during these weeks of prayer, she had a vision of a, of a chapel, and, and there was a stairway that led up, and there was open doors. And on the far side of the wall, there was a, a cross there. And, and she interpreted the dream that, that in order to... to, to that, that God was calling her to actually walk through the house of her enemy. And to do that, she had to go through the cross, which was the way of forgiveness. At the end of her 40 days of praying, there was a knock on her door, and she opened the door, and there was a soldier there. And he said to her, are you Deborah? He said, for the past 40 days, each night I've had a vision of you praying for me. And I can't stand it any longer, he said. He says, I've come to confess my, my crime of, of killing your, your son and, and to ask for your forgiveness. Please hand me over to the police. I, I don't want to live any longer. And she said, first, you don't have to ask for, for my forgiveness. I've already forgiven you. But you killed my son, my only son, and I will have my vengeance. And you're going to now become my son. And Deborah actually legally adopted him, and this soldier is now living as her son. Deborah sounds like a remarkable person, but in that situation when her son was killed, I mean, what else do you do? Where else do you turn? She turned to God. She didn't have the, the means to forgive. She needed God's intervention to help her forgive. And Daniel's come to believe in a God in heaven, as the scripture tells us, who is powerful. As someone once said, the size of your God determines the size of your prayer requests. And the size of your prayer requests determine the size of your answers. And Daniel believes in a powerful God, and Daniel turns to him, and as we read in verse 18, he, he goes to his friends and he, he urges them to do, do the one thing that, that they can do in that moment because they're powerless, they have no, no other place to turn, is to pray, cry out for mercy. And I, I don't know about you, but when I'm in, in those kind of desperate points, that's sometimes the only word that can come out of my mouth is mercy, God, mercy. It was the prayer I prayed when I heard, heard the news this morning that Assumption shared. Have mercy, God. And I love this. Daniel, Daniel doesn't have to wait long for mercy. I don't think he, God knew he didn't have a lot of time on this one. Verse 19 says, during the night, that next night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And you can imagine the first thing you think Daniel would do is to, to run into the king and say, stop the execution, I've kind of cracked it. I, I, I know the dream. And it's not what he, what he does. It says in verse 20 that Daniel prays to the God in heaven. And he got this beautiful poetic prayer that Daniel prayed. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. And he goes on in verse 21 to, to just tell us how powerful this God is. He changes times and seasons. That's different, by the way, than daylight savings time. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. We see that in this very book. I mean, he raises up Nebuchadnezzar as a tool of judgment, but he brings him down when he judges too harshly. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. I mean, Daniel just experienced this. God granting him this wisdom. Daniel has tasted God's wisdom. He, he's got power over rulers, rulers like Nebuchadnezzar. And what you've got in this chapter is this, 
this transformation that goes on. What starts out as one thing ends up being something completely different. Here's this mighty, powerful king at the beginning, and, and, and then little old Daniel is kind of in the backwater somewhere. But in the end, Daniel is in the is in the position of power, not because of his own power, but because of the power of his God. Again, indulge me just a moment here. It reminds me a little bit of Lord of the Rings. Um, really? Really? Uh, at the beginning of the, the, I remember I was like 13 or 14 when I first read the books. And uh, those of you who haven't read it, it's a very long book, so dig in if you're, you're really, my dad, just before, a couple years before he died, said, should I read Lord of the Rings, son? You mentioned it a lot. And I said, don't, don't waste your time, dad. It, it, it's okay. I'll tell you everything you need to know. And I think that's true if you're in this congregation. I'll tell you everything you need to know. At the beginning of the, the book, though, uh, it becomes very clear that the enemy is great. Sauron and his puppet, Saruman, are, uh, are powers evil. And, uh, and you sense this, this, this shadow of doom over the land. And uh, it's just great. It, 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 and the whole book, uh, and then the heroes are hobbits, which are, would be children to our eyes. And they, they form a little fellowship. There's like nine of them. And, and, and they're going up against great powers that are beyond them. And at the end of the, the book, and, and, and it, it seems like doom is going to fall right to the very end of the book. And then, then they, good comes out on top. I mean, the hobbits succeed in their mission. The ring bearer takes the ring to Mount Doom and it's destroyed and evil is vanquished. It's, it's an amazing overturn. And my favorite scene in the films uh, and that's saying something because I have a lot of favorite scenes and I, I cry every time I see it, is when King Aragorn, is, he's crowned king and he walks out among them and there's the hobbits, the four hobbits who are about to bow and Aragorn says, you bow to no one. And instead everyone else bows to these four little childlike creatures and, and it's, a, it's a beautiful scene. Uh, and it's a, the kind of reversal we see here where the, great, the greatness we see in somebody that does this wonderful sacrificial act. And here in Daniel 2, the, I, I, I think the gods must have seemed like that to them. So powerful. But by the end, they're nothing. This massive reversal takes place because by the end, we read in verse 47, it says, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all the wise men. I mean, there, there's someone who was nothing really at the beginning of the story who by the end is, is ruler of the province, second only to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I think this chapter in, in Daniel chapter two is meant to be a testament to all who would take heed that there is a God in heaven who is powerful. That's, that's the truth pronounced by, by Daniel. And, and, and it's a truth that we need to hear in our day. I, we, I, I think as we look around at the mess in our world and sometimes even the struggles we, we have, um, sometimes we're gonna wonder, is there a God who is powerful? If so, why hasn't he done something about the suffering in my life? Or why hasn't he done something about the injustice that we see happening in the world? Why hasn't he done something about 
chemical warfare in Syria. And maybe, we, maybe, maybe you prayed like Daniel did. You, you, you asked God for mercy or you asked to, to have him intervene in your, in your life in a particular situation or even in a, a hole that you've, you've dug for yourself and somehow it seems like God doesn't answer, nothing seems to happen. Folks, I know it. We, we would love for God to intervene in our lives always and with zero hesitation, right? We pray God answers. But God's ways, surprise, surprise, are not our ways. Came across a quote this week by Pastor Daryl Johnson. I jotted it down in my prayer journal. And uh, he said this, he says, remember the lamb is not foolish. Jesus Christ is not a dummy. But here's the secret, a secret we would never know through an ordinary set of glasses. The greatest power in the universe is the weakness of sacrificial love. The greatest wisdom in the universe is the foolishness of sacrificial love. It reminds us of the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus always shocked his followers by his approach to power. He he didn't use power to wipe out his enemies. Instead, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what what they do. He didn't use his power to, to restore the nation of Israel. Rather, he used his power to demolish the kingdoms of, of sin and death and then establish a, a, a kingdom that was not going to be marked by military power, but by healing and wholeness and love and compassion. And God is still at work in our world powerfully. I, I, I believe he still does actually raise up kings and deposes them. He still intervenes in history. He still inter- intervenes in, in people's lives. We've seen some of that here. But even when God seems to be restraining himself in particular situations, he's still doing something that, that nobody else can do. He's actually restoring and renewing hearts. He's transforming individual human beings. I, I briefly shared last week how, how I had breakfast with one of our, our church members. They'd called me up and, and had wanted to meet with me. And uh, we sat down over breakfast, and, and he says, I've been waiting, waiting to meet with you for a long time. I want to tell you my story. And here's the thing. I thought I knew his story. But there was a part of his story that he hadn't told me. And it was a story that started about 15 or 16 years ago when, when he actually started um, coping with some of the life issues that were going on in his life, some of the hurts and the pain, he, he started to self-medicate. And his self-medication was alcohol. And, and he would drink. And it went from being, uh, sort of his motto was, work hard, party harder, to, to drinking every day. In fact, when he'd get home from work, he'd go into the shower and he'd have a beer in the shower. And he's, and he's telling me this story of, of how this is, was coming about. And... Um, as I said last week over breakfast, he, he shared with me how, uh, and this is a guy who loves Jesus, he, he follows Jesus, but um, he, he got to the place where he was just fed up with that. He said over a couple of years, he says, I grew increasingly dissatisfied with my dependence on this drug and, and, and having it be my master. And he said how hurtful it was and how frustrated he was and, and day after day after day he's, he's dealing with this thing and he described to me this, this longing that he had to be free. By the way, there's grace in that. 
right, right in that in itself, um, because this addiction or habit that was pulling him away from God was at the very same time pushing him towards God. Isn't that cool? As I, as I said this week, he, he called me up about a year ago on a Thursday to tell me, he says, Derwin, the, the prayers you've been praying for the congregation, God, the, the prayers you've been praying for people's hearts, he said, a breakthrough is coming. That's what God, God seems to be telling me, that a breakthrough is coming. <laughs> well, the very next day, so that's Thursday he calls me, the very next day he's driving his, his vehicle, and, and suddenly... The power of God, it's kind of like a story I shared recently, literally says, it's like I had to pull over because the presence of God was so thick in my my vehicle. And I sensed God saying to me in that moment, saying, you need to go home and you need to confess this to your wife that you've been wrong in this. And and on top of that, you need to tell her you're not gonna drink anymore. And he's like, what? And he goes home. And he tells his wife this, and he hasn't had a drink since. A year, there's a year now. And when I asked his permission to share this story this week, he said to me, make sure you tell him that it's not even so much about the freedom he's had from alcohol. He says, that's a big deal. He said, the bigger deal is how I have now experienced the love of God in my life. He said, it's like, like I'm a different guy. Like God has changed me. And God does that. God in his, his power may work differently than what we would expect or maybe even what we would demand, but it's no less powerful. And in the lives of, of those who trust in Jesus, they, they bear witness to his resurrection power. Power to persevere in, in difficulty. Power to somehow survive and, and, and even thrive to bear with suffering. Power to forgive the unforgivable, like, like that Rwandan woman was able to forgive her murderer's son, or the murderer of her son. The, the kind of power that, that, that can change a life come, coming from the, their trust in Jesus. So Daniel reminds us that there is a God in heaven who is powerful. And this passage reminds us that there is a God in heaven who reveals the future. Um, Author Madeline Engel, she wrote the book, The Wrinkle in Time, and in that book, she said this great line. She says, I have a point of view, you have a point of view, God has view, (laughs) right? God sees it, God knows. And so in verse 28, there's this great statement of Daniel's, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And Daniel, as he shared the dream, this, this dream of his, this dazzling statue of gold and silver and iron and, and, and clay, and in verse 37, he goes on to interpret it. He says, interpret it. He says to the, to the king, you, O king, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Verse 38, he says, you are the head of gold, which I'm sure was good news to the king, and then followed various kingdoms afterwards. And in verse 44, we read this. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up another kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And what he's saying is, is the kingdoms of this world aren't going to last. They, they won't be around thousands of years into the future. And if we look around at our world and we feel like things are uncertain, it's actually because they are. I mean, think about it. What happened to the Babylonian Empire? What happened to the Greek Empire? What happened to the Roman Empire? I mean, what, Alexander the Great is no longer Alexander the Great, is he? 
Alexander the, the Dead. 500 years ago, think about who were the world powers 500 years ago. I mean, the Netherlands, for goodness sakes, were a world power 500 years ago. Portugal and Spain. Kingdoms come and go. We're, we're never to look to, to the powers that be in our world, the superpowers in our day as, as being the power. We're never to look to them for certainty. They're, they're kingdoms that will not last. And as we read on in Scripture, God reveals that the kingdom that will never, never end is the kingdom that comes when the King Jesus comes. This enduring kingdom that has broken into history that Jesus in his life and death and resurrection and his ascension is proclaimed the King of kings and the Lord of lords and those who trust in him as king have all the hope they could ever need. Jesus, our king, has promised to one day return. And when he comes, he said that he will make all things right. All those unresolved questions we have, the, the, the issues in our world, those will be resolved when he comes. And we're told that in that moment, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's no mystery about it. God has revealed the future. You can take it to the bank. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Uh, it's kind of funny, actually. Uh, Timothy Keller talks about him having kind of a wow response, like, wow, Daniel, you not only told me my, my dream, you, it's kind of like you, you did this nifty trick, right? You interpreted it. Wow, awesome. I could use someone like you. And, and he raises Daniel up to the center of the court, which is obviously uh, kind of a good thing for Daniel. But he's like, Daniel, you've got power, you've got wisdom. Good to have someone like you in my back pocket when I'm in trouble, right? Nebuchadnezzar entirely misses the point. <laughs> Somehow he only heard the part about him being the, the head of gold, right? And, and he missed the news of the future that his kingdom was going to be destroyed, that, that his rule is going to come to, come to an end. And, and in the end, Nebuchadnezzar honors Daniel. He, he actually gives offerings to Daniel when in fact he should have been bowing the knee to the king of kings. And there's a warning in this for us, I would say. We too, like Nebuchadnezzar, forget that the kingdoms of our own making whatever it might look like in our own lives, what our kingdom looks like, they don't last. They'll come to an end. And as we build a life, we need to build it on a solid foundation. As I said on Easter, we need a certain future, and we only find that certain future in the kingdom of Jesus. Sometimes I think that we maybe treat God like Nebuchadnezzar treated Daniel. Good to have him around as our number two, right? I think we'd often settle for a God that, that takes our suffering away so that we can go on our merry way ignoring him. It's a great temptation for us. And God loves us. He knows this. And he will not settle for the healing of our bodies when he knows there's such a need to heal our souls. That's what God's really, really passionate about. Some of the wor first words Jesus ever said when he arrived that we have recorded is the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And, and he was talking about himself. He was talking about himself as the king that is worth giving our lives to, worth bowing our hearts to 
worth turning around and going his way. Whatever, wherever we've been going, it's now time to join him. And he, he says, come follow me, we go. Because he's worth that. So we might get in on his good news. The, believe the good news, he says, this good news of this everlasting kingdom. Well, verse 45, just take a quick look at this because this is a great summary, really. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the, the interpretation is trustworthy. Now, maybe for some of you this morning, I, I, I don't assume that you maybe believe this is true. Maybe you're not convinced. And some of you, maybe you're exploring Christianity. You're, you're reading, you're, you're asking questions. Maybe some of you just attended our Alpha course. And those are, those are really good things because Jesus, <laughs> Daniel's God, claims to be true. And if we're going to trust someone who is the truth, we need to make sure it's true and trustworthy. For those of you who are already trusting in Jesus the King, I think this story encourages us to keep looking to God, to keep praising his name, to keep on bowing the knee and giving thanks. Because let's face it, God is not yet our get-out-of-trouble-free you know, card. Uh, you're going to go through things in your life, and in many ways we're going to be powerless uh, on our own. Our strength and our wisdom will not be sufficient And the good news is that we can call out to God for mercy, and we know that we can count on his mercy. As a famous preacher, A.W. Tozer, once said, how completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me, and as the music team comes forward and leads us in song, let's let's pray. I'm going to pray the prayer of Daniel. Prayer praise. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And God, we praise you this morning and and. We say you're God, and you are worth bowing our knee to. Teach us what that looks like in our lives, Lord. And Lord, uh, there's, there's those of us this morning who maybe are especially feeling powerless today. And I pray that you would step into their, into their lives. I, Lord, love for you to just to, to deal with that, to, to take their, their issue away. But even if you do not... I pray you'd use that. You'd you'd remind them that you're near, that you're with them, and you might grant them your comfort. But Lord, we worship you this morning. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.